Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some Hello, awesome. Friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Live, we're not really live, we're like, but we're alive in the city of... Jay, tell them where we are. Uh, we're in Jaffa, near Tel Aviv. Okay, I want you to tell everyone who's on the, the ones and twos today. Because we really only have two microphones, but it's three people. <laughs> Can you introduce them? Uh, this is our friend Mike from Park Crest uh, Christian Church, not to be confused with the Church of Christ, in Long Beach, California, and we've been on a bit of a pilgrimage. Go- Goldworthy? Goldsworthy. Goldsworthy, which is, f- you need to give them, we need- Goldsworthy. Which is fitting, you should be on Newsworthy with Norsworthy. If you had a podcast, would we call it G- Gold Nuggets with Gold, no, no, whatever, whatever, fine. Hey, uh. Michael, let me ask you a question. This is what all is getting edited out, right? No, I don't edit. I don't edit. All right. You clearly haven't listened to the podcast yet. Michael, let me ask you a question. Do you want to make a difference in this world? I do. Let me tell you how you can do that. Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Program specializes in training people to make huge differences in the lives of individuals, couples, and families. Is that you, Michael? Do you want to do that? Yes. Individuals, couples, and families. Now, whether you're a new college graduate, someone ready to make a significant career shift... Or a minister who wants to expand the scope of your ministry like you, Michael. The Lipscomb Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Degree offers a rigorous 24-month program that can prepare you to become a difference maker. Located in Nashville, Tennessee. Michael, have you ever been to Nashville, Tennessee? I've been to Nashville. It's, it's an amazing it's city. It's a lovely city. It is my favorite non-beach, non-Texas city. Wow. No offense to South Bend, Indiana. Now, Lipscomb's Marriage and Family Therapy Program is accredited by the Commission of Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education, which means the program has met the highest and most rigorous accreditation standards in the nation. To find out how you can become a difference maker, visit lipscomb.edu backslash MFT or call 615-966-5237 and ask for Kathy Johnson. There you go. Lipscomb University. You didn't go to Lipscomb University, did you? I did not. But you're you're kind of similar, like your restoration movement, like the Churches of Christ. Yeah, yeah, we're cousins. Yeah, Christian Church. Christian Church. Uh, Long Beach. In Long Beach, which is my favorite non-Texas beach town. Is it really? Yeah. Because you're like you're like been there a long time. I've been there eighteen years. Yeah. Uh, Long Beach. Isn't there Snoop Dogg? Snoop Dogg is from Long Beach. Graduated from Poly High. Really? Yeah. Have you ever seen the Snoober? I've never seen... He's never been snooping around? No. No, and he was Snoop Lion for a little while. Yeah. Also, his actual name is Calvin Broadus, I believe. Yes. In case you would like to know who he actually is. That's impressive. Without even Googling that yet. No, just a deep dig. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay, so uh, here's the story. How did you end up on this television? Because what's going on right now is we're at the very... penultimate day of the Telos trip, and uh, you've been here now, what, like a week or so? Yeah. That's how long we've been here? Yeah, just as long as you have. Yeah, that's true. Uh, How did you end up on this Telos trip? I um, I guess my story, I was invited on this trip a few times by a friend of mine and never was able to go, and then when the um, embassy, the U.S. embassy moved to Jerusalem, and there was all these Palestinians who were killed as a result of the move that they were protesting and they were they were killed as a part of their protest. And I just felt like I need to know what's going on here. I don't really know what's going mm-hmm. on. Called my friend, asked him, like, put me in touch with somebody. And he put me in touch with Todd, who leads Telos. And he told me to really understand what's going on. You need to come with me out here. Outstanding. We actually stayed like the very first night we got here at a hostel according to Jay's uh, decision, uh, right next to where the embassy used to be. 
and it was very economical. And as we walked by the embassy, there were some guards outside who like just stared into my soul. I was terrified of them. Were they U.S. guards? They, or, yeah, yeah, they look like they're U.S., but uh, they they they. How did, what is the past tense for stare? They sh- stored into my soul. Nope, is that not a past tense, Jay? What do they say at Notre Dame about that word? <laughs> they, they use bigger words. You okay? Which is give me a bigger word than that. Uh, I got nothing right now. Yeah, nothing. It's been a long trip. It's been a good trip. Okay, but you're on your own. Touchdown, Jesus. There it is. Okay. Uh, uh, where should we talk about? I, let's do high lows for the trip. High lows. Not, let's not do high lows. Yes. But you think about. It. We'll, we'll come to those. Um, yeah. Let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about what happened in West Bank. So we went to the West Bank uh, a couple days ago, and we stopped at the Waldorf Hotel. Is that the right name? Waldorf Hotel. I think so. Which is a hotel that Banksy has created. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you are like a like an art person who knows everything about Banksy. I assume Jay probably knows more than both of us about this. I would assume that too. I like Banksy, but I assume Jay knows a whole lot more. Jay, give me, give us the, the, I'm not a Banksy expert, but he's a street artist from Bristol, England. People don't know who he is, but there's theories about who he is. Um, if your listeners were paying attention recently, they might've seen some kind of noise about an art piece of art being auctioned at Sotheby's that shredded itself the minute that the sale ended. That was a Banksy piece. I thought that was kind of like a hoax because I saw that and I was like, oh, that's a cool prank. But it wasn't? No, I mean, that, Banksy's like taking credit for it and he put out a video after it where he showed how he built the shredder and everything. So How did he, like, what are the details on that? He, he built a shredder and put it in the frame. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so Banksy's, um, <laughs> he's like, he's known for subversive street art. His stuff shows up in all around, around the world, like London, New York, LA, uh, but also, like, I think he's pretty well known for the work he's done, especially, like, on the actual separation barrier on the wall that Israel erects between Israeli territory and Palestinian territory. Yeah. And so there's some sort of hot spots for that, and Bethlehem is one of them. And the Waldorf Hotel recently went up, and, and that kind of features his whole message and artwork. And his most recent piece is actually on the wall in a crack? I, yeah, I don't know if it's the most recent Banksy, but it's it's new Banksy in, okay, in, it's an, in the West Bank. Can yeah. you describe it? Yeah, I thought it was beautiful, actually. So there's, there's the actual separation barrier, and if people haven't seen it, maybe they could Google Israel-Palestine wall or whatever. This is one of the places where the wall is the actual like 30-foot concrete panels. Mm-hmm. And there, there just so happens to be a place in the wall where two of those panels are separated a little bit. It almost looks like, I don't know, maybe the earth shifted or something. Yep. But toward the top there, he's got two little like cherubim-looking angel boys, one with like a, like a hipster hat on and one with like a, like beanie. a yeah. Yeah, beanie and then the other with a, a bandana around the face. Yeah. And they're on either side of the crack and it looks like they're kind of pulling it apart. One's got a crowbar mm-hmm. and it's like, I, I think it's really beautiful. People should just Google Banksy Bethlehem yeah. angels or whatever. And they'll see it. It'll it's, I, I probably will have posted on my Instagram by then because I, I found that to be deeply moving the day after we did a Eucharist service on, uh, Beatitudes, Mount of Beatitudes, Mount of Beatitudes, yeah. and you asked us to spend like ten minutes or so getting ready, uh, getting our hearts ready. And the question you asked was, "How are you arriving at Jesus' table?" So give a few words about that, and that was the image. Like for me, it's like, oh, like that's kind of like my heart. Like I feel like it's being opened up and huh. like being drawn forward. And so, like I found that to be deeply, like deeply moving that piece and it, the the dichotomy of this is like literally this is a thirty foot wall to barricade people apart. And to protect, divide, however you want to describe that, in the midst of that, there's art that's just like this, these beautiful pieces that are graffiti all over the wall or placed all over the wall. And I, I found like the juxtaposition of like 
the prison, the security, the walls, and art in the in the midst of it, like found very very compelling. And I thought like what is the what, like what is the witness of art in the midst of stuff like that? And then specifically, the, the three of us are all people who preach every week, just about. Um, and what's the what is the role of our art in preaching in our world? Like how, mm. how does it how does it present itself? Yeah. So I I thought a lot about um, like a lot of Brueggemann's work, and I'm going to butcher it, but like the idea of the prophet. First, Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, thanks. friend of the show. Yeah, uh, the idea of like prophetic work that confronts you with the reality that you're ignoring, because a lot of Banksy stuff um, is confrontational. It, it sort of maybe forces you to forces you to think about the fact that the situation is a, as bad as it is. When maybe you're tempted to not want to believe that, so you have like confrontation with reality, and then you have um, sort of an indictment of that reality, and then you have hope, which is like some of his stuff is like like those angels ripping the wall apart. Yeah, and I, like I, I always think about like okay, so we're Westerners like doing you know quasi tourism over. We're learning, but we're also we're here for a week and we'll yeah. go home. But I think about what it would be like to be like a. I thought immediately, like, what would it be like to be like a ten year old boy growing up? Um, on the Bethlehem side of the security wall and what those walls would mean to you and then to see Banksy's art on that wall and, and like so what that would mean to you. that's the West Bank side. You're the one who's yeah. barricaded off. Yeah, you're the one who, you know, there's a lot of interpretations of what's going on over here, but I, I assume a 10-year-old Palestinian boy growing up in Bethlehem Which sees that wall as something that's oppressing him. Yeah. So to see Banksy's art like on it, I think that would be like really profound. I found the connection of uh, of that with I think it was a night before that we had the Shabbat dinner with the family and the beautiful singing father, three daughters. So obviously dad and three girls, I'm going to connect to that very quickly. And they did this beautiful song about Jerusalem. And it's almost like uh, what he says after that is like, my life right here is a protest against, or no, he said, it's my sweet revenge over what the Nazis did. Cause his grandmother or grandfather had passed away in the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. And so I, like, I saw like the picture of art is like, it's calling into darkness light, right? Yeah. Anyway. Is that a question? No, that's not a question. Okay. I was talking. No, it's a good statement. I like it. I've got nothing else to add to it. You, you don't like Banksy? I like Banksy a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... Um, what, so what do you think of the role of, of preaching as art or prophetic art? Uh, I mean, yeah. So preaching can be at times like it, it in its maybe worst form. It's just this didactic... Right, like I'm going to tell you what I know, and I'm going to download information to you. But in its best form, it um, confronts you in ways that you weren't expecting, and it hits you from the side, and you weren't even you weren't even realizing it was going to do that thing to you, and it just kind of moves you, and you sometimes leave it, and you can't you don't always have words for what happened. You can't always describe it. You can't always put language around it. And that's, I mean, I feel like that's, I, I wouldn't have been as articulate as Jason was about the Banksy piece. I, I just found it really moving. And I, I don't think I could fully articulate all of why it was moving. Yeah. It seems like art is this, I, I don't say it's, it is not, obviously it's nonviolent, but it's a way of, of confronting power. And whether you're, uh, an exile singing songs of love of your town that you're pulled away from, or you're in territory that however you want to describe what's going on, that it's a way of saying, I, I'm not going to devolve into violence, but I'm not going to let myself be walked upon. There's, there's a, uh, so the three of us on our trip here, we met with a guy named Linter Isaac. Yeah. 
and he works with another guy named Mitri Rahab that we've met with before. So Mitri works here in Bethel or works in Bethlehem, and he's a Lutheran pastor, but he also created a, like a community center. And they focus. So Bethlehem, people might not know this, right? But Bethlehem is actually really economically depressed because it's behind the wall. So all the tourism dollars tend to stay on the Israeli side of the wall, and then. Mm-hmm. You, you got a community there that since the wall's gone up, it's been really hard for them. So essentially, like, forget about Israel-Palestine for a second. You've just got a pastor leading a community mm-hmm. that's dealing with all kinds of struggle and the experience of some kind of economic difficulty or oppression. And so he created a community center, but the heartbeat of the community center isn't job training or um, the, the kinds of things people might immediately think of, even though, like, those are really good things. The heart of the community center is art. And he wrote like a really beautiful article about why they do that. And he said, art is the thing that teaches us to breathe underwater mm. or, or no, maybe it's, metaf- it's either that, or maybe it's, maybe it's, um, maybe it's the mar- marathon metaphor. I think he says that to, again, I'm, I'm just sort of echoing his language to describe his experience of all this. So I don't mean to sort of characterize everything going on here, but Mitri would say that when you live under occupation, it's like running a marathon. And if you try to run a marathon without knowing how to breathe during a marathon, yeah. you won't make it to the end. He said, art is the thing that teaches our souls to breathe mm-hmm. uh, under occupation like as we run a long, long run. Yeah. And I, that, that stands out to me too. Yeah, so when we went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum a few days before, you, you walk through this and it's this, I don't say soul crushing, but it, y- you're, you're encased in what I would say is one of the, the worst tragedies is the world has ever seen and you're walking in there for hours and at the end this is the line about the sweet revenge our our guide has this beautiful vista that he steps us out onto we leave kind of the pictures the museum and you're on this beautiful like it's almost like a deck that's overlooking this beautiful like hillside and he goes this is our this is our sweet revenge like life right now and it was like the architect had said here here is another way of seeing the world like we we have a future we are going forward and like art is drawing you out from where you were to where you could be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like you need something to reignite your imagination, right? That you need to be able to um, not just dream of what could be, but of even like when you are oppressed or when you are experiencing some sort of hardship or pain, you need something that ignites your imagination to think of new ways to engage in it because your most natural reaction is fight violence with violence to do the thing that is done to you, to the other person. And you need something to ignite your imagination to just reframe things so that you begin to think about it differently, to think of new ways to engage. Mm -hmm. And and that was, uh, it's weird to say a recipe book, a recipe club is art, but at at Yad Vashem, they talked about how the, yes. some of the, the Jewish women would get together at night and exchange recipes. And it was almost like this protest to say, I'm starving. I think they said that they were getting maybe 200 calories a day in Auschwitz, but they would exchange these recipes almost as like this prophetic picture of, yeah, right now we're starving, but one day we'll be feasting. Yes. That this isn't the end. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so here's like the tension of the trip is that we're exchanging stories of uh, the Jewish people's struggle and then you're talking about the struggle of the Palestinians. And it would be easy to kind of get uh, myopic and just pick a side and say, okay, this is the right person, that's the wrong person, and we're going to vilify the other, and this is person who's all right. And one of the things that I've loved about what, what Todd uh, has done on the trip, Todd, who was on the, the show last week, is that he, he doesn't let us just vilify one. He holds attention of, of both sides. And his, his line that he's gone back to is, is peacemaking requires us to hold attention of two truths. 
that might seem independent, but they both can can be valid and substantial. And a, as you all have processed this idea of of being peacemakers, of making peace here, how how do you think about that translating back to your communities? Because as pastors, uh, I mean, obviously it's not on the scale of what's going on here, and there, there's obviously ways that we would we want to participate in bringing peace to this region. But but our day to day job is not this region; it's it's back home. So what is what does peacemaking look like? I mean, I think that there's something really significant about letting somebody's story be validated as their story and their experience. And so I think of I think of a black guy in my church who has been pulled over by the police several times for no reason and harassed by them. And that's his story, and that's his experience, and that's his reality. We also have at our church the chief of police who um, has a very different experience because be, be, being on the police force. And so, like, you've got these two things. Or I've got a white guy who is my age, I'm a white guy, and I have not had those experiences with the police. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be able to hear his story and let it be true, while my story is also true, that I've had a completely different encounter and experience with the police. Yeah. Jay, I know you came over here for the third time, and one of the things that you've been saying is, I want to experience this differently as someone who's leading a community now. Yeah. Which, so, at the end of this, how, how do you see this different now as someone who's leading a community? Yeah, I don't know if I, I think I'm still working on that. Um, I think I just, my first trip here was amazing and it wrecked me. Um, And then I went back to a context where I just knew like, um, we're not going to, we're not going to get into that. So I'm going to kind of work this out on my own for a little bit. That's good. Um, I think, I think the big thing I've been chewing on is um, I want to keep, digging into the the inner journey that fuels the outer journey of peacemaking like and, and not that you i mean they you know i'm not saying one leads the other i think it's very interactive and dynamic but like um i think i think like we have a, a, the temptation like we have um a temptation to sort of cultivate a deep inner world of faith mm-hmm. and to not be deeply connected to the social systemic structural things that are happening in our world and then i also think there's a counter temptation which is to be all about attacking the social, the systemic, the structural issues, but without cultivating the inner world. And when I look at Jesus, I see a person whose inner world was profoundly deep. Like all those little nods in the gospels where he went off on his own and they don't tell you much about what happened there, but then you see the fruit of his life. So I think, I think the thing I'm I'm just, I keep trying to work out here is like, what's the, what's the sort of um, spiritual practice or like, what do I need to surrender to or open my heart up to? Um, to, to become the kind of person who actually can re- resist and push back against things that are breaking in our world with different energies than the ones that people bring to those tasks most of the time. Yeah. Cause it just feels like so often the energy that we are bringing to try to fix the things is this is, is actually the same energy that's breaking the things. And then we wonder why we aren't making anything better. Yeah. And so while we're here, I want to learn from everyone. I want to see everything, but I'm especially trying to listen to like, so I think of Daoud Dawood is a, he leads a thing called Tent of Nations. Um, your listeners can probably Google that too for a better story. But essentially, it's a farm in the middle of all this conflict. Um, and if you sit with Dawood, um, it, he, he's, he's like fiercely committed to doing something different here. It, it's beautiful and transformative and inspiring. And he has his own view of who's hurting whom in all this. But at the end of the day, he'll tell you that um, both sides of the conflict are suffering and then he has this really positive vision for what they can do in the midst of all of that. And yeah. I just find it, um, that's a really shorthand way of describing it. It won't help your listeners a whole no, lot. But. No, what he said uh, that stood out to me is he tells a story of 
250 trees being bulldozed. Yeah. And he says, it, it's not just bad for the oppressed, but also for the oppressor, because the guy who's on the bulldozer has to go home at night, and his kids have to ask him, yeah. how was your day? Yeah. And it, it carries a weight. And that sort of, like, cruciformed uh, kingdom of God sort of perspective of pray for those who persecute you, of yeah. loving yeah. your enemies, is I feel like that's what the Chris, Christian witness is. And, and I, I was going to say, I think you can decide to do that in the moment sometimes. And you can be graced in a moment to be able to do that. But I think more likely is you're either going to, you're either going to follow Jesus into, into a depth in your own inner, in your, in your own life that leads to that fruit or you're not, you know, like, but I think it's like, I think it's usually kind of a long road. What do you mean? I mean, to become the kind of person who can actually sustain that kind of witness. I don't know that you just choose to do that. I think you have to become that. Yeah. And I think becoming that is a longer road then just well, deciding is a good starting point. I want to mm-hmm. be that kind of person. But I think to actually live that way is probably a longer road that yeah. is going. And that's like, so we've talked about the Beatitudes a little bit, like on the Mount of Beatitudes. And a lot of people here will talk about how real those words are for them in this context. And that's one place I keep looking at, wondering, asking, kind of exploring the way that, that Jesus is kind of wooing us into a way of being... Um, like allowing ourselves to be broken by the world and then kind of having all that pain transformed into something that can actually make a difference. And I think it's a mm. long road, but I think it's the right road. Yeah, I think, I think it is a long road. And my friend Stormont uh, has talked about, uh, there's a, a classmate of mine who, do you remember uh, a couple of years ago, there's the Ebola crisis in Africa. Yeah. And there was an American doctor who went over there and ended up contracting Ebola. Well, Ken is someone that I went to school with what is his last name? Brantley, Ken Brantley. Ken and I went to school together. And uh, so he was located in Adelaide when he came back. And so my friend Jonathan was his preacher. And so of course he's going to suck up to him since, you know, he got, <laughs> he got into the white house and all that. But he wrote this piece about, about Ken. And he said, when Kent was stricken with Ebola and there was only like one vial of anti Ebola, whatever okay. it's called medicine, he offers <laughs> to give it to the nurse that he's working with. And so, powerful story, which speaks to the character of Kent. And Stormont said that in that moment, he didn't make that decision to give the the vial of anti-venom away. It was all the decisions leading up to yeah, that that yeah, yeah. made that decision. And I think that's the life of, of spiritual formation. Yeah. I mean, have you read um, Duhigg's book, Power of Habit? Oh, I love that book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, the whole idea Charles of Duhigg. Yeah. that you only make a... The decision that you make in the moment is based on the habits that you've cultivated over time, which is really... You know, all the spiritual formation writers are talking about. So Dallas Willard talks about vision, intention, and means. So you have this vision of nonviolence. You have this vision of responding in a more positive way. You have this vision of, I'm going to be this kind of person towards those who are treating me this way. And then you have the intention that I want to move in that direction. But the means is the um, spiritual disciplines that you do, the habits that you develop that form those characteristics in you. Mm-hmm. It's the thing of like, I was trying to think of like, what are spiritual disciplines that open you up in that direction? And I was actually thinking about, in the 23rd Psalm talks about um, that the, the Lord puts me at the table with my enemies. And that there's something about eat, that there's something about being able to be so fully formed in who God has made you to be and being so secure in that that you're able to sit across the table with your enemies. And I think there's something really significant of a spiritual discipline of having meals with people who are 
maybe like the at the most basic levels they're just different than you yeah. and that it moves to a place of somebody that you would see as your enemy and that the discipline of just sharing interacting yeah yeah that's good uh two things one obviously you have to mention the power of habit because doohig references rick warren yeah and as a pastor in california i know rick warren is basically like your pope he he is our pope we all wear um hawaiian shirts Mm -hmm. go kiss his ring once a year yeah so of course you have to reference that book for for that reason uh Second, uh, like eating with your enemies, I think that's one of the themes that's come up, like the power of spending time together. And yes. we've heard stories of those who've never interacted with someone on the opposite side of, of this struggle, and you see that, like, and you see the effect of it. And then we're just today in a town called some, what's, what's the name of the town? Haifa? Haifa. 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 Yes. Uh, sorry, I, I couldn't remember that. I thought the name was Haifa. Nated. Um, anyway, that's a terrible joke. It's a terrible joke. Haifa, hyphenated, anyway, whatever. But uh, they talk about how it's one of the most diverse racially of the towns, um, and they've been able to to coexist well, I think, because you know, I think that's what he was saying, yeah. is that it dispels the fear when you have relationship. Yeah, you're forced into it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so so practices of, of formation, like, that helps being peacemakers. It's not an instantaneous decision. It's this constant, constant work of formation. I think one of the things that you also see is the ideologies that we maintain and that, that sustain us also affect mm. the way we treat people. Uh, one of the things at Yad Vashem that we kept being reminded of is the ideologies that people had, the anti-Semitic ideologies that the church even perpetuated that led to the actions and and those sort of things how you think translates into how you act can i I say my first trip here so on the last step i kind of referred to this my first trip just destroyed me um and i like i had a journal that i brought on that trip and i think i wrote you know maybe 20 times in the journal like (laughs) again and again i kept writing it in my journal and like i you know write over it and and like make it darker and bigger and the word i kept writing down was theology has consequences yeah and whether it's seeing um the anti-semitic seeds that were you know there in so many expressions of the church throughout europe over the centuries um they created the horror um that our jewish neighbors walked through like that whether it's um certain things that are being preached from American pulpits today Mm -hmm. that might seem, you might disagree with it, but might seem innocuous until you come over here and you you can actually draw a line from some of, some of that to some of what's broken here. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking theology has consequences. Theology has consequences. Like just, it just like it was assaulting me, the the sentiment. Yeah. I 100% agree. I I feared that it's easier to pick a side and say, this is the right thing for us to do. This is how you go vote. And so it seems like you're being proactive in this. But I don't, I don't feel like our responsibility as pastors is to have the conclusion to the issue. Mm. It's to try to, to help articulate theology that reflects the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. And then I think we let the Spirit lead people to what the application is. Because I think, yeah. I, I, I've been here but, for a week and I've read a book and a couple articles. I don't pretend to be an expert on this thing that mm-hmm. millions of people have been influenced by and people way smarter than have been trying to solve but the voice i feel like i'm supposed to have is let me teach people a healthy picture of who jesus is yeah i i think a lot about um uh checking checking your math though like i think if i want to know if i'm preaching the right theology in the aggregate i i ought to be able to look at the fruit of the people who are hearing me now, I don't mean any individual. I mean, people are going to make their own decisions. They're going to do whatever they do with what you say. They're going to misunderstand you or whatever. But in the aggregate, I do think about, 
not that I'm going to tell you what to do with every minute of your life or who to vote for, mm-hmm. but that like in the aggregate, I ought to be able to look at what I'm teaching and how it's like, if you're a person who listens to me and would say you take seriously what our community does and like what we say together, mm-hmm. I, I do want to look at the, the fruit of that. Yeah, Michael, as, as you're going back to preach, hopefully you're not preaching on this this Sunday. You might need a little bit of time to process. That's just my suggestion to you. I know that you're much I, older than me. Yeah, I'm preaching on the passage of eating with enemies from Psalm 23. Oh. That's why it was on my mind. Oh, good. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be thinking about it. How, okay, I don't so the, how that much. <laughs> and it's literally on your phone. It's not just a normal translation yeah. that's your screensaver. It's your translation of it, <laughs> which still isn't as bad as Jay has to be a complete five and have the itinerary as his screensaver on his phone, which is a, <laughs> well, let me check the map right now. Where are we supposed to be? <laughs> anyway, like Dora. I appreciate your guys' little banter throughout this trip. Well, I mean, I feel a... like I'm just defending myself. Yeah. Okay, but as you're, you're processing this, it's hopefully not going to, you're not going to, like turn this into your sermon for Sunday, but it will influence how you, like what you do going forward. How do you see it impacting? I genuinely don't know. I mean, one of the things at just like a real basic surface level kind of thing that I thought about was when um, I was growing up, my parents used to take us on cruises and we'd go to like a Caribbean country and you get off the cruise ship when you get into port and you get on a, you get in a bus that takes you to whatever sort of excursion you're going to do and you go back and you get back on the boat. Um, then I made a friend who is pastor in the Dominican Republic and I went down to spend time with him and I was like, Oh crap. Like there's so much of this country that I've missed. There's this poverty and there's people and I began, and I stayed in people's homes and, mm-hmm. and it was a different experience. So I think there's something about, um, even just coming over here for a trip and missing a bigger story and just kind of hitting the holy sites and getting in your bus and missing the larger story. But then even, within the other things in our community of doing the same thing of not knowing people, not knowing their story and just kind of bypassing that. I don't know what to do with that, but that's one of the things I've been thinking a bit about. Yeah. I think that there's power in learning stories. I feel like that's one of the things that Todd has been very intentional about. Let's have meals in people's homes on each side of the issue and let's hear their story. Let's hear their perspective, ask questions from everyone, listen to what they're saying instead of jumping to, Here's the right answer. Let me give you the information to buttress whatever conclusion we think you should have already. So, Jay? Look, I want to know what you're... I'm kinda, I want to throw it at you a little bit. I'm just curious. Um, yeah, this is the, our second to last night here. I'm curious. Um, maybe... Are there one or two moments on, on the trip that have... That like right now you feel like you'll still be working out a month from now, or you know, are, are there a couple of things that just whether you know promising and inspiring or difficult or challenging? I'm just wondering if there's. I mean, there are haunting moments mm-hmm. that like they will be, they'll be there forever. I mean, they're just indelible experiences that will like you know, what, like the. I don't want to talk about this. Uh, uh, that's why I asked. <laughs> in, in Yad Vashem, when they yeah. talked about having a kid that's like 8 to 12 sneak through the cracks and run and get food, yeah. and you don't know if they're going to come back, and there's a poem um, that a, a kid wrote to its parent, his parent or her parent, and we so we have this guide who's talking to us through the microphone, so we're wearing headphones and we can listen and adjust the volume of this little pack that we have. And when he was doing that, I just couldn't do it. I have a 10-year-old daughter who's really fast, who would, who's really uh, slender so she could fit through things. And I know that could have been her. And like, what did I do to not get the short straw um, 
to, to be there. And I think about us going through all these checkpoints. And so there's A territory, B territory, and C territory. So um, it's all... Um, so there's different checkpoints that different people are allowed to enter based on if you're Israeli or Palestinian. And as an American, I can go wherever we want. And mm. I didn't do anything to get that passport. Mm. I, I didn't do anything to, to get the privilege I have of knowing, oh, they're not going to, they're not going to hurt me because I'm an American and we give $3.9 billion a year to Israel. And I, what did I do to be an American? And I think of what my life would be and the abilities that, that we have to kind of ponder what the psychologist Maslow talks about, like the hierarchy of needs. And some people are just base level, like food and security. And then we're at like the top of the food chain, just pondering the existence of humanity. That's what we do for a living. Mm. And we would never have been afforded the space to do the intellectual work we have been given the opportunity to do if we had to worry about how do we provide for our family and make sure that we're not being ripped from our home. Like I, I will, I, I'm aware that I have been born on third base and I don't want to act like I did something to land on third base. So, so that, um, the, we were at a, is it refugee camp? Is that the right yeah, term? At Aida. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. it. So that's in the West Bank. That's right. And the journalist that was being a guide for us. Journalist slash like community center leader. Yeah, community yeah. center. That's, that's the right term. He had a scar in his eye. And I asked him what that was from. And he told us that it was a rubber bullet that, you think rubber bullet? Well, that's not going to hurt you. And then he showed us the picture of this rubber bullet that's embedded in his cheek, in his cheekbone. And he said he probably has 80% of vision in vision loss, 20% capacity of his eye. And I'll remember that. And I'll remember, tell the story about what you experienced, because they talked about this 13-year-old boy yeah, who but, was... I think, go ahead. No, he's a 13-year-old boy who, along with two other kids, was shot by a sniper from 200 meters yards away. Um, and at first, the government tried to say it didn't happen, and then they tried to say it was an accident. Uh, but long story short is 13-year-old boy is... Palestinian boy is shot by an Israeli soldier and we hear this story, we see the, the response on video. We didn't obviously see it. We, we heard um, this gentleman telling us a story and showing us footage of how the community responded. And it was deeply moving. And then we finished that up. And what happens to you, Jay? Yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, so, so you know, it, um, we see the, the they, there's a video of them carrying the, the boy's dead body through the streets. And you see his, you know, his face. Um, and then we walked outside, and the corner where that happened is right outside the community center. So we walked by that, and there's a man smoking a cigarette right next to it. Take a picture of the the, the sign. There's a sign there that tells the boy's story. And uh, I noticed the gentleman. We kind of walk on by, and then and then around the corner, our guide points out that that was the boy's father, who just stands on the corner there where his boy was killed, and. For me, so that that was one of my my first trip here. Like every day, I was like, "Man, I'm done." Um, you know, I kind of like got beyond my breaking point. And so, you know, a couple trips over, you you kind of get into know the stories. But that was a fresh moment for me, where I was really like done. And it was interesting because we we talked a little bit about how some of these shared experiences create different reactions for all of us because we're all just mm-hmm. sort of reading them differently. But for me, that was um, a fresh moment where. And frankly, that's not a moment where I'm 
I don't actually feel much impulse to pick a side. Mm-hmm. I just have this thing inside that's like, we just, we have to figure out how to build a world where that doesn't happen. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's this deep impulse. Like we, we have to figure out how to build a world where 13 year old boys aren't shot by snipers. Like yeah. that, that's the thing I feel, you know? Yeah. I got to do something. I, I was reminded that, so the story of America is obviously we come over the boats, end up here. The people who are occupying America at the time are natives who for all intents and purposes have basically been wiped off our country. And I, I had a thought, I was like, what would happen if they would still be around in a more prominent per- percentage of America? What would our country look like if the people who were here before us had been given the opportunity to live? Would, they have, would we be in this sort of Israeli-Palestinian crisis? Would we be in that? Um, I, I don't know. Um, and it, it's humbling to know, like, we have this great situation, but it didn't come without people losing everything. Yeah. And so we've got to do something. Like, I don't, I know you have, your daughter's 11 and your son is 13. Yeah. I don't know if that story connected with you. Did you have that one or another one that really stood no, out to I you? No, I mean, I had the same experience. I think that was the most powerful moment was that whole, that whole experience there, the whole um, hearing, hearing his story, watching the video of the child and yeah, having that walking by the father there um, was really moving. It was really moving. I actually had, uh, I was trying to figure out how to quantify it here, but um, uh, Jay led us through the Beatitudes up on Mount Beatitude as we were, as we were taking Eucharist. And, um, and it didn't seem like you had it written down, but whatever it was that you shared was really meaningful and powerful. I don't know if, if you're able to give us a snippet no of let's that? not no? i'm probably going to preach in the beatitudes and if i rip some of that off <laughs> i, I like don't that. want it to be attributed to I jay like that. but that, the, <laughs> it was really good i'm kidding luke norseworthy uh church folk just know know where it's come from if it's not cited <laughs> <laughs> no he had some really good stuff in there it was and it was really like uh, i felt like it opened up the beatitudes for like what we were experiencing a moving thing during the week and it opened up the beatitudes to to help us enter into that thing and to enter into the scriptures and even to bring it back full circle to the, um, back to Banksy. Like that was a little bit of performance art there that you were doing where you were usually, you weren't just reading the Beatitudes to us, but you were, you were opening them up without giving a bunch of explanation. You were reading them to us in a way that engaged in our current experience and, and linked it. And we were able to like make those links without you having to explicitly do it for us. Yeah, that's good. So uh, the line that I have no idea who it came from first, but um, art, preaching, journalism, whatever, is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. In the Beatitudes, it does that. For those who who are strong and have inherited the earth, the Beatitudes say there's another way of doing this. And for those uh, who are who are celebrated um, because they've they've created their own strongholds and got their way. The Beatitudes say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Like th- that's what the Beatitudes are doing. They're inviting us into uh, to something else. Anything you're going to add to that, Jay? Obviously you were, okay, why did you, why, why did you pick the Beatitudes? My own answer, you weren't, you didn't, you weren't given the choice of talking about that, but I assume you were assigned that, right? Well, no, Todd just said, could you lead us in Eucharist uh, that morning 
but the place is called the Mount of Beatitudes. So, it's kind of on the nose. Like you yeah. pretty much had to do that. But that's not that's not why I did it. Um, but more so because that text has been sort of the central. Um, when I got wrecked here in 2010, that text began my walk home, like my 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 return. Um, and then. F- um, I. I spent the last eight years just wrestling with lots of experiences of people I love in, in very personal brokenness and then the world in it's um, astounding brokenness sometimes. And it just, it feels to me that um, Jesus is doing something really deep and profound. And I, I, like, I don't read them as prescriptive. I think that's a miss. I don't think it's like a new law. What do you mean by that? I don't think it's all right. So if, if those who mourn are the ones who are blessed, then let's all begin to mourn. I don't, I don't think you can manufacture those experiences or feelings, but I also don't think they're purely descriptive. So some people, some scholars will like run toward, oh, this is just describing the the manifold availability of God's kingdom to the to the least of these. I actually think there's even a third possibility, which is, um, and I, I'm still like hunting for the right images and angles on this, but that Jesus is using these promises of blessing to again to like woo us into our experiences of powerlessness, which are already a part of our lives, mm-hmm. but that we we tend to run from. And, and then there, there, he kind of, there's this, I think he just knows that there, there is, there, if, if you have a poverty within you, if you've been robbed of some joy or some hope, if you run from that, you'll either become addicted or you're going to become um, a shallow person. Like there's all these ugly things that happen to anyone who wants to run from their own inner poverty, right? Yeah. And go on through all of them, right? But like, so if you trust when Jesus says, I call you blessed, if you hear him and you believe him, then you might not try to run from that. Right, yeah. and you kind of you begin to work that out, and then and then I, I again, this is just what I've been working on, but it feels to me that like there's a turn from powerlessness to power in that in that trajectory that Jesus talks about, because he does get to the point where you're persecuted because of righteousness, and I don't know anybody powerless who is persecuted. Um, now I don't mean um, status power, I don't necessarily mean yeah. economic power, but but I mean like um, since I believe evil has limited resources. I love that line. I yeah. think if evil comes at you, it means you've made yourself a threat to the disorder. Mm-hmm. And so the disorder has to come at you and try to take you out. So there's just, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time on those, but I think there's, there's a lot going on there. And so then I had a really painful mental health journey. Somebody I love had a really painful addiction journey. I live in a city that has a really painful systemic and economic journey. And I come here where you see everything. And it just seems like whether it's, you know, the personal story or the bigger story, some, something's in common there about things that break and things that get put back together. Yeah. And I feel like Jesus is, is like doing something really profound in, in those simple little blessings. Yeah. Yeah. I think the difference of prescription versus descriptive is, is key to how you get that. Um, Eugene Peterson, who just passed away a few days ago, translated uh, Blessed are the Poor in Spirit. He said, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope for when there's less of you, there's more room for God and God's rule. Mm. And I think that's the invitation, like in this moment, like there's less of us. We're at the end of our rope mm-hmm. for solutions, for hope, for optimism. Uh, as Todd said last week on the podcast, if you're a pessimist, you've got the facts on your side. You've got the numbers, you've got the graphs, you've got all the information. But I think that's the invitation of, of the Beatitudes is that there, there's, there's this other kingdom, this upside down kingdom that we're invited into. And somehow we're not, given the means to give solutions. And I think the, the temptation of the church is Peter, I think it's Acts 4, is asked if you know he can help someone 
uh, or to give him money. And he says, gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have is in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And what we've done is responded, you know, I don't have Jesus, but I have money. Let me get just give you this, give you this charity and to move on. And I think we've kind of digressed into those sort of cheap answers. And I think what the invitation is, is the way of Jesus in the midst of uh, a world that doesn't look blessed at all is to offer that. So, Jay, you have like an emotion today. Like that was... <laughs> Not very. You fi- did too. I just want. No, I, that's not very Enneagram Five of you. It's not very Enneagram Seven of you. Okay, stop it, <laughs> Michael. Any other highlights that's we got to right. cover? Because we said the high low game, but you know, in my family, we don't really play the high low game. It's just high high game. The like, high high game. Yeah, give us. You know what? I I actually really love today being in the Church of the Synagogue, where Jesus <laughs> took the, uh, which is a great name. Yeah. And Jesus took the uh, the scroll uh, from Isaiah and reads it out of Luke four. And, or he doesn't read Luke four. We. <laughs> uh, so, but the thing, one of the things I found really fascinating was our guide said to us that um, they weren't one of the. So Jay read it and then pointed out like the thing that disrupted people was the inclusion of the Gentiles of the idea that that Jesus kind of leads to that, and then the guide points out to us. Uh, the message wasn't being received here. It was a super small conservative town. So Jesus then moves on to Capernaum, where his message would be would have more receptivity. And so, so I, I don't really fully know what all to do with that yet. But I thought it was really interesting that Jesus didn't stay and try to like duke it out in his hometown to be like I can get these people to change. He went to the he left it and went to a place that would be more receptive to the welcoming message that he was bringing. And then, and then I was thinking about like we're sitting here in Joppa, where um, where Peter receives a vision in Acts ten that totally shifts and changes his theology because our theology has consequences, and which ends up in this journey of inclusion of the Gentiles, and just totally has to shape and form it. Like there's this openness that's required to um, for yeah. God to bring you into new spaces. Yeah, yeah. I don't think. I'm not 100% sure if this connection is accurate, but is, this is also the place where Jonah's from, Yes, right? And so Jonah doesn't want the outsiders included. Yeah, yeah Peter yeah, here yeah. receives a vision, says everyone is included. Yes. That's good, isn't it? it is. I didn't come up, yeah, I did just come that's up good. with that. I saw both your face, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that in a sermon. <laughs> yeah, that's really, yeah, that's a great, that's a great, like, irony that both of us happen in the same place. Okay, Jay, you don't have anything before we get out of here? Any final words? Uh, I'll just say my other high. Can I give a high? Yeah, let's give a high. Yeah, you like that, don't you? Yeah, let's um, stay there. No, I, I, seriously, uh, at the risk of being sappy, I'd say the uh, community on the trip. Oh, um, Yeah, I mean, not you, obviously, but some of these guys. Aww, are, Mike's that been could great. have been our moment. <laughs> no, that could sorry. have been a moment right there. No, like, I, I think um, these are really sacred and really difficult experiences. And I think um, to have a, a small little community that's convened for seven or eight days here to be on the bus and and mm-hmm. kick these things around yeah it's actually like a highlight for me has been you guys and some of the others on the trip um just really grateful for some traveling companions yeah yeah me too it's been real great to be here with one of my best friends josh ross who was on another trip he's here at the same time so that was pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding uh michael Welcome. Uh, I'm. Uh, I was excited to get introduced to the 
the Norseworthy, Newsworthy. Oh, come on, man. You're on my news- podcast. You just got it wrong. Doggone it. Have you even left a review on the podcast or no, on uh, Amazon for my book? I downloaded, I downloaded your book and your podcast in Israel, which <laughs> I feel like earns me bonus points. <laughs> it definitely does. It definitely does. All right. Well, uh, that's it. We're done. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norseworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.